Hey, Christ community, great to be with you today. If you are watching for the first time, uh, man, a special welcome to you. I am so glad to be a part of your spiritual journey. We, we as a church are going verse by verse through this very powerful sermon that Jesus gave that's found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. In this sermon, Jesus, who is the smartest and wisest person to have ever graced our planet, being the Son of God, he basically gives us this crash course on how to truly live, how to experience genuine life and blessing, how to experience healthy relationships, how to experience joy and peace, how to align our lives with God's heart and God's values, which is what makes this sermon so powerful. And yet, as we've been seeing as we walk through this, it's also what makes this sermon so challenging. Because the way of life that Jesus is describing is often very different than how we instinctively approach things. And this is especially true in the passage that we're looking at today, in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. In this passage, Jesus talks about how his followers are to respond when they are mistreated by an evil person. How do we respond to evil? All right, here we go. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I mean, just reading this passage causes all sorts of emotions and questions and thoughts to surface. I mean, is Jesus calling us to be wimps, to be doormats, to just passively submit to mean people and let them walk all over us? I mean, what is the value in that? What is Jesus really going after here? Well, let's try and figure that out. He begins in verse 38 by quoting a very familiar command that's in the Old Testament books of Leviticus Exodus and Deuteronomy. The command is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What, what this referred to was situations where there was a conflict of some sort resulting in violence and personal injury. Someone gets mad and they punch someone and that person loses their front tooth. And the idea was that whoever caused that injury should pay for that by experiencing the very injury they caused. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, while this law feels very callous and archaic in our modern ears, it actually served a very important purpose in that violent culture. What it did was stop the escalation of violence that often happens in situations like this, where you hit me and bruise my face and I grab a bat and break an arm and then you call some of your football player friends who come visit me in my house and then I call Pastor KJ to bring his professional hunting equipment. I mean, you get the point. This is all about vengeance, and it just keeps escalating. It's about vengeance, not, not justice. As, as humans, let's be honest, we, we don't do justice very well when it involves us. We do vengeance, and that almost always escalates, sometimes resulting in people dying. This is what happened in Rwanda, where... 800,000 people were killed in a period of 100 days, all because of one tribe of people trying to get vengeance. 
I was recently reading a book about Nathan Meeker, the, the founder of Greeley, who died tragically on, on the Western Slope, all because of an act of vengeance for something unfortunate that Meeker had done. And that set off this escalating situation between the U.S. Cavalry and the U.S. Indians, with many people being killed on both sides. As humans, we do vengeance really well, and the damage is often horrific which is why this eye-for-eye law was put into place in ancient Israel. It was to stop that cycle. Now, the other thing to point out here is that this law in the Old Testament was to be discharged in a court of law. It was not about an individual taking matters into their own hands. But over time, it had become exactly that. By the time Jesus came on the scene, The religious leaders had turned this law into a justification to use violence and vengeance against someone who had hurt them or that they disagreed with. Remember, the religious leaders were the ones who urged Pilate to crucify Jesus. That's how they dealt with someone who disagreed with him, crucify him, and they felt perfectly justified in doing so. So this approach to vengeance and violence is what Jesus is confronting in this passage. All right, so let's look again at what he says. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, it sounds like Jesus is urging passivity, cowardice. Just lay down and let evil people do whatever they want. I mean, that's how some people interpret Jesus' words. But the problem with that is that's not how Jesus lived. (laughs) I mean, Jesus spent a good deal of his life resisting the evil that the Pharisees were inflicting. His own life was about resisting evil religious systems that oppressed people. So Jesus can't be saying that he wants his followers to never resist evil, to, to just let evil happen. Okay, so what is he saying? Well, what's interesting to note is that this word translated resist actually means more than that. In many other places in the Bible, this Greek word is used to describe a violent rebellion, an insurrection. So what Jesus is saying is not, hey, just passively let evil happen. No, what Jesus is saying what Jesus is saying is, do not retaliate against violence with violence. That's what he's saying. One version of the Bible translates it this way. Don't react violently against the one who is evil, which makes way more sense. Jesus didn't come to passively submit to evil. He he didn't come to be a doormat and let evil do whatever it wants. No, he came to bring his kingdom and to drive out Satan's kingdom. He came to bring light into darkness. So what this means is that the key issue here in this passage is not about whether or not we should resist evil. The key issue is how. How are we to go about resisting evil? And this is where Jesus' teaching offers us a mind-blowing and radical alternative to, to the most obvious options that we have. Now, let me just say that I'm indebted to author and scholar Walter Wink, whose insights into this passage have helped me better understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. So when it it comes to situations in which we are experiencing an evil person, we as humans instinctively respond in one of two ways, fight or flight. 
we either use violence to resist, that's the fight part, or we just passively submit. In other words, we become the oppressed. But Jesus in this passage offers us a third option, a very powerful and subversive way to resist evil. He urges us to overcome evil with good. Now, before we look at the specifics of what Jesus says here, I want us to look at the book of Romans chapter 12, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And in this letter, Paul gives us this vivid description of this very response Jesus is talking about. All right. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then here's the summary statement. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is articulating in greater detail the principle that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, that when we repay evil with evil, we get pulled into the vortex of that. We get caught up in our own vengeance, which escalates our hatred and our bitterness and our anger within, which then often leads to violence in word and deed. We become overcome by evil. Paul says, don't take revenge upon an evil person. Instead, do good to your enemy. And when you do good to your enemy, Paul says, you will, it's like heaping burning coals on their head. Now, that's not literal. That's a metaphor. The idea is that when you are kind to someone who is mistreating you, it messes with them in a big way. It messes with them. It actually has the power to advance the heart and the kingdom of God in that person's life way more than if you treat them the way they're treating you. Both Paul and Jesus are urging us to respond in such a way that evil is not only resisted, but it is actually overcome. Rather than us being overcome by evil, <clears throat> evil is overcome. Evil is swallowed up by good. Now, let me take just a moment and address the elephant in the room, because I know what some of you are thinking. Alan, are you saying that if someone breaks into my home and threatens to rape my wife, I'm supposed to offer them coffee? Um, are, are you saying that we shouldn't have fought World War II, you know, so we'd all be speaking German right now in a Nazi nation? I'm not saying that. And I don't think Jesus is either. So, so often when we read Jesus' words here, or when people read Jesus' words here, they immediately extrapolate them to these unique situations of personal safety or military intervention. And when we do that, I think we're in danger of missing the real point that Jesus is making. What Jesus does is give us four very personal and individual examples of how to apply his words. And none of them have to do with nations at war or with someone breaking into our home and threatening our children at gunpoint. What they all have to do with is how we respond in our day-to-day -day lives. When we experience someone mistreating us at work 
or in our family or in social media or wherever. Okay, so let's look at these four examples that Jesus gives. Here, here's the first. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, this is a pretty well-known passage. You hear people talking about turning the other cheek. So what's happening in this example? Well, in Middle Eastern culture, you do not use your left hand for anything productive any in any relational way, I should say, probably. You use it to go to the bathroom. So it is viewed, your left hand is viewed as being untouchable. So if you're standing there and someone slaps you on the right cheek, which is what Jesus says here, that means that that person that slaps you, they have taken their right hand and they have done a backhanded slap. They've done a backhanded slap. This is not a fist fight. This was not someone robbing your home. This was someone whose intention was to humiliate you. In that culture, a slap like that was a humiliating. It was a mark of shame. And, and, and unfortunately, in that culture, a backhanded slap was a way of, of admonishing or humiliating an inferior person. <clears throat> so it was often done by masters to slaves or by husbands to wives or by Romans to Jews. Many of Jesus' original hearers would have experienced this kind of treatment from a superior so why then does Jesus counsel these already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? Well, in the words of Walter Wink, it's because this action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, in effect, try again. Your first blow failed to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I am a human being just like you. Your status does not alter that fact. You cannot demean me. See, there, there's something so powerful in Jesus' counsel. He's not saying cower in fear and just become a doormat, just submit. Nor is he saying power up and try to take them down, hit them harder. No, this isn't fight or flight. This is a third way. Jesus is describing a third way. You look them in the eye, you offer them the other cheek, and by doing so, you are courageously saying, you can do what you want, but you will not rob me of my dignity as a human being. I will not cower in fear before you. So go ahead, slap me again, insult me again. My identity is not dependent upon how you treat me. This is brilliant. Because what it does is place the inferior person on a higher moral ground. If anyone is watching this happen, they know who the better person is. And so does the oppressor. To strike again a person who is looking you right in the eye and refusing to be robbed of their humanity forces the oppressor to face their own evil, their, their own attempt to dehumanize another person. Now, whether it results in a change of heart in that person or not, that's not the issue. The, the issue is that by responding in this courageous way, we're not allowing our hearts to be overcome by evil, nor are we allowing ourselves to become the oppressed 
No, we are choosing the third option. We're choosing the way of Jesus. This is exactly how Jesus responded when in John 18, he was brought before the high priest for questioning the night before he was crucified. Jesus said to him, I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus is completely calm. He refuses to let the slap rob him of his dignity. He looks the slapper in the eye and he asks, if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? You see, Jesus is resisting evil, but not in the way we typically envision. Jesus is resisting evil by refusing to be a passive doormat or an explosive, violent hothead. He maintains his dignity, and in doing so, he exposes the truth in a very powerful way so that everyone in that room had to look at their own heart and actions. Second example, verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So Jesus is describing a situation in which someone who is evil is suing you to take your shirt. Now, in that culture, a man would wear a shirt, but then they would also have a tunic, a coat over that. And then that tunic served not only as a jacket, it also served as a pillow. When they would go to sleep at night, they would roll it up, serve as a pillow. So it was a very important possession. So Jesus says, look, if, if, if this person is suing you to get your shirt, go ahead and give them your tunic as well. Now, again, notice this is not submission, cowering in the courtroom, begging the person to keep your, let you keep your shirt. It's not that. And this is not powering up, aggressively going after this person in court to take their shirt. They're going to take yours. You're going to take theirs. No, that's not what's happening. This is a third way. By giving them your shirt and your tunic, you are exposing the person's true motivation. If they take it, everyone in that courtroom will see them for who they are, a greedy person who is only in it for themselves. You still have your dignity, your integrity intact. You've exposed evil without letting your heart be overcome by it. And you have also demonstrated an unshakable faith in God who promises to provide for you. Now, I realize that the legal setting Jesus is describing is much different than our culture and that these kinds of legal matters today are highly complex. But Jesus' question is still in play. How can I overcome evil with good? For example, am I hiring a lawyer for protection or for ammunition? For, for fairness or for revenge? See, what is going on in our heart? What does it look like to overcome evil with good? Third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, in that time period, a Roman soldier could walk up to anyone and demand that they carry their pack a mile. It was a way to exert 
you know, dominance. And yet it was also a way just to get a break from carrying this heavy pack. So what was a person to do in this situation? If, if a soldier walks up and demands you carry their pack a mile, that was the requirement. Well, what's a person to do? Well, one option would be passive submission. Head down, allow them to oppress you, carry the pack a mile, inwardly hating the soldier the whole time. Option number two, actively resist, fight them. But again, by doing so, you lower yourself to their level. You become the oppressor. Third option, you pick up the pack. You cheerfully carry it with head held high. And when you get to the mile marker, you keep carrying it. See, by doing so, you have taken back your power to choose. And you've caused the oppressing soldier to no longer feel like he is in charge. You've maintained your dignity and have exposed the oppression in a creative and probably unsettling way for the soldier. Fourth example, verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this example here broadens the point of application beyond simply an evil person. For Jesus, financial generosity is a given in his kingdom. It is like a given value. If we're holding on to our things and we're unwilling to give to people who ask us or to lend to those who want to borrow, we are not reflecting the heart of God. We're not reflecting the heart of our God. We're, we're allowing evil, the evil of greed, to be at work in our hearts. So, so how do we overcome greed in our hearts? Well, Jesus says, through generosity, through generosity. That enables us to overcome the evil of greed in our hearts by being generous with those who ask for help, for those who want to borrow from us. So what Jesus is describing in this, this whole passage here is a, is a pretty radical and brilliant way to deal with an evil person. We are not to lower ourselves to their level, you know, responding back with evil towards them, nor are we to just passively let their evil rob us of our dignity as we simply become doormats and inadvertently let the evil go unchecked. No, no, no. We, we are to choose to overcome evil with good. Now, there is a pragmatic question that often arises when we start to play this out in our mind. And, and some of you may be thinking this right now. Can this really work? I mean, can this third option really make a kingdom impact? Well, let me give two examples. One of the most vivid and powerful examples of the effectiveness of this approach is Martin Luther King Jr. His entire approach to confronting the prejudice and evil in our culture was based entirely on this passage in Matthew 5. I mean, he could have led his followers to take up arms and use violence, which would have only incited more violence. Or he could have just urged his followers to passively accept the way things were. But no, he chose a third option. He chose the Jesus option. He led his followers in peaceful marches, where they were at times beaten by the powers that be and all the world was watching. And suddenly it became very clear who had the moral high ground. 
who had the most powerful voice, and it wasn't those holding the weapons. It was those who chose to uphold their dignity without violence. Martin Luther King Jr. was absolutely committed to this biblical truth that we overcome evil with good. In a sermon he wrote while sitting in the Birmingham jail, he articulated in such a powerful way this kingdom heartbeat. Here's what he said. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Here's a guy who actually believed Jesus' words and he put them into practice. I'm sure that for many of his followers at that time, this made no sense. Martin Luther King's followers made no sense. Come on, let's fight. Let's retaliate. Let's use whatever force we can muster to take back what was stolen from us. But Martin Luther King Jr. was unwavering in his commitment to resist evil the way Jesus commanded. And it did exactly what he predicted. It changed people's hearts. Evil was exposed and significant change happened in our nation, change that reflected the heart and the kingdom of God. It's amazing. Let me share another example of a person living this way. Samuel Cisse is a a director of a ministry that builds schools in remote villages in Western Africa. And as part of his role, he had to remove a a man from a staff position after serious charges of misappropriation were proven to be true. This man, whose name is John, he responded to being let go, being fired. He responded by hiring a local witch doctor to pronounce a death curse on Samuel. Well, soon after that, Ebola hit in that region. And John's entire family of 23 people had to be quarantined for three weeks because of an exposure to Ebola. Now, a family that large would not survive. They could not survive three weeks without any income or any way to obtain food. And the government government was not able to do anything. So Samuel, the man that John had hired a witch doctor to curse, Samuel organized meals and care packages to be taken to John and his entire family. When John saw the the care packages arrive, he was so overcome that he nearly broke through the rope that demarcated their quarantine. His family was sustained and no one else contracted 
Ebola. Soon after that, he wept publicly and he asked the church to pray for him. Samuel chose to overcome evil with good and it had a profound impact, not only on this man whose heart had become hardened with evil, it had a profound impact upon his family and upon that entire village. Jesus' way is so radical. It is so counter to our instinctive response, and yet it is so powerful. It enables us to overcome evil with good. Now listen, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. It will not be easy. So, so, sometimes we will be taken advantage of. Sometimes the evil will seem to prevail in the short term. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in cold blood as he pursued the way of Jesus. Jesus was beaten and slapped and mocked and then hung on a cross to die. As he breathed his last breath, it certainly looked like evil had won. But Sunday was coming. The power of love is greater than the power of evil. And the empty tomb proved that to be the case. And now, friends, that same power lives in us and invites us to follow this Jesus, to overcome evil with good. Are we willing to do that? Let's pray together. As you quiet your heart, I want to just remind all of us that Jesus is an amazing Savior. He overcame evil with good. He endured suffering for our sake so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could find life in him. We are recipients of the reality of him overcoming evil with good. We're the recipients of his goodness. He invites us to trust him. He invites us to follow him. Are you willing to do that? Maybe for some of you, this is the first time where you've seriously considered following Jesus. And I want to just invite you in the quiet of your heart to pray a prayer where you can ask Jesus to come live in you. And you can place your trust in him. In doing that, Jesus meets you. He forgives your sin and he comes to live in you and transform you from the inside out. So if that's you, you don't have to understand everything about who Jesus is and understand all the Bible. You don't have to. All you got to do is admit your need and place your trust in Jesus. So if that's something you want to do, you can do it right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I choose to place my trust in you. I want to follow you. And so I ask you to forgive my sin and come live in me 
changing me from the inside out through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in their relationship with you. And if you prayed that prayer, tell someone, let them know about the decision that you've made. Now, for those of us, for all of us who are watching here, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, maybe you just became a follower. Let me just ask, what is Jesus saying to you in response to this message? Is there a specific situation that he is speaking, he is speaking into in terms of your response to being mistreated, to, to an evil person? What would it look like? What would it look like to overcome evil with good in that situation? God, we pray for wisdom in these situations you've brought to mind. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with a supernatural capacity to love, to overcome evil with good. Help us know how to do that. So we pray for your wisdom and your fullness, Lord. We want to be people of your kingdom. Jesus, we want to follow you. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. We love you. We pray that you would use us to overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.